Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 15th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before I begin, I want to say that we, um, we took receipt of 200 copies of the softcover version of our book, Christ Strike, the commentary on the revelation of Yahshua Christ just this morning and they are already available for purchase at Christagenia.com. I don't often speak about the Christagenia.com website. I never really thought I would use it much. I own the domain name only to um only to own it so that nobody else buys it. And I had only used it for advertising and and links to where we do sell CDs and books and t-shirts and things like that through third-party vendors. When Lulu.com had deplatformed us or canceled our accounts and ceased to sell our books back in September, we decided to begin employing the Christian Christagenia.com website in order to sell our own books, having them printed in bulk. 200 copies isn't really bulk, but it's about all the bulk that we could afford, and it's probably sufficient for the volume of sales that we plan on doing. I, I expect 200 copies to last every few months, and if I reorder every few months, I will be quite happy. Right now we have both Christ Strike and the Christogenia New Testament available in soft cover. I pray that one day in the future I'll be able to provide hardcover books for sale, except that they're a lot more expensive, so the upfront outlay is a lot greater. It's it's just simple mathematics. In January, I pray, I hope to have a commentary our commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans in book form and for sale at Christogenia.com. And I have dozens of potential titles, but I have five or six lined up after that that I will work on as we get Romans out the door. And, and I'll work on Malachi and Amos and Zechariah and Hebrews and, and the balance of Paul's epistles. So that hopefully at least one day all of my significant writing will be available in book form. That's my goal. Praise Christ. I pray that I make it. This is part 24 of our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's special notices to all who deny to seed line. Here we bring our presentation of Clifton's series to its conclusion. So far as my records indicate, this 24th and final notice was completed by Clifton on February 6th of 2003. As we have seen in his earlier portions of the series, Clifton did not really plan on writing so much on, on this subject and on the other hand, sometimes he thought he would write much more. Instead, he went on in his ministry to do other things, 
but all of them ultimately relate back to this same subject. There is no subject more important if a Christian really wants to understand not only his Bible, but the forces which govern the world around us today. As we proceed this evening, we shall hear Clifton make the assertion that it is paramount we fathom that Yahweh came in the flesh, dwelt among us in the flesh, was bruised in the flesh, died in the flesh, was resurrected after three days in the flesh, ascended to heaven in the flesh, and will return again to us in the flesh. Of course, there is no one verse of scripture which informs us of this. However, there are many verses which inform us of one aspect or the other. So, Clifton's words offer a compilation. For instance, we read in Hebrews chapter 2 that Christ took on the seed of Abraham. And in Romans chapter 9, that Christ was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So Clifton may indeed assert that Yahweh came in the flesh. Likewise, we read in John chapter 1 that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So Clifton says here that Yahweh dwelt among us in the flesh. Then in Luke chapter 24, we see the following exchange where Christ appeared to the apostles many days after his resurrection. And it says, And as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see me have. So Clifton can certainly assert that Joshua Christ was resurrected after three days in the flesh. Then where we see in the Gospel of John that Christ, after his resurrection, had told Thomas, to reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing, we see that Clifton has grounds for asserting that Joshua Christ was bruised in the flesh. A short time later, as Luke records the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1, we see in verse 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. When the apostles marveled, they were told by the angels of Yahweh that this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come. In like manner, as you have seen him go into heaven. So Clifton can certainly assert that Christ ascended to heaven in the flesh and will return again to us in the flesh. In Genesis chapter 1 we read that Yahweh God created 
man in the flesh, and it was good. And in chapter 2 we are told that a man's wife must be bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, and that then the two could become one flesh. In Joel chapter 2, in the fulfillment of promises to his people, Yahweh says concerning them that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, by which those promises may be fulfilled. All of this is in response to those who continue to hold the error that the devil is the flesh, or that the flesh is the devil. This simple-minded view of scripture generally comes from an isolated interpretation of some of the words of Paul of Tarsus, which describe the struggle that every man suffers between the spirit and the flesh, between the will of the spirit and the weakness of the flesh. These things are discussed by Paul in Romans chapters 5 through 8, and more concisely in Galatians chapter 5. The struggle is real, since the Adamic man has two natures, the fleshly and the spiritual. But the other races do not have two natures, and only bear the flesh, not even the same flesh. So, Christ asked his followers, as it is recorded in John chapter 6, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Yet they were all in the flesh. So if only one of them were a devil, and eleven of them were not devils, how could the flesh be the devil? The truth is that the Adamic race which Yahweh created they had the spirit by which a man may overcome the flesh. But there are people here which are corruptions, which are resulted from rebellion against God, which were planted by the devil, who do not have that spirit by which they can ever possibly overcome the flesh. They are bastards. For that reason alone they are devils. And Judas Iscariot was one of them, but eleven of them were not devils. Those bastards, those people planted by the devil, are also the princes of this world. As we see in Luke chapter 4, that a devil had taken Christ up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomever I will, I will give it. So Paul told his Christian audience, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And in Ephesians chapter 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The rulers of darkness rule over us today 
because Christians have forsaken that battle and they have forsaken Christ. But Paul is not speaking to fleshly men. He's speaking to spiritual men in the flesh. In Romans chapter 7, Paul made an example of himself and said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Then in Galatians chapter 5 he said, But if you be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, idolatry like going to bed every night dreaming about a mansion you're going to have tomorrow that's just going to come into your life magically. That's idolatry. Witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. The spiritual man is the man who seeks, none of us are perfect, the man who seeks to keep the law. The reconciliation of these passages comes with the knowledge that the law is spiritual and it is designed to govern the flesh. But those who are guided by the Spirit do not engage in the things which the law proscribes. So long as they walk in the Spirit, the law need not rule over them. For a man to achieve this is to be perfected. There are people out there, people who um, are even very intimate in their knowledge with me. There are people out there who say that we are little gods, that we're small gods, small g gods. And that's true. If we have the Spirit of God, the Scripture says that ye are gods. And these people think that they could go off and imagine things, sort of like the Genesis chapter 1 account describes. They could imagine things, and because they said they will have these things, and because they dream about these things as they sleep at night, that these things will magically appear in their lives tomorrow. I'm sorry, that's not true. Christians are perfected in punishment, in sin, in suffering. We are perfected in repentance 
and acceptance of our humanity and our redemption. Yahshua Christ said that no man is above his master, but he being perfected will be like his master. None of us, none of us in this flesh are perfect. None of us can create our own reality just by thinking about it. It's not going to happen. We walk in the law and we are spiritual when we walk in the law. We are in tune with the will of our Creator when we walk in the law and we love our brother. For a man to achieve this is to be perfected. As John had said, I'm sorry, as Christ had said in John chapter 14, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither does it know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. The purpose of man in the flesh is not to sin, but to walk with God in the flesh, to accomplish his will for man. But man can only accomplish his will when he does not sin, and especially when he, was, when, when he does not lust. So the enmity of Genesis 3.15 has nothing to do with the internal struggle between spirit and flesh, which every man experiences. Rather, there are supposed people here on earth who are forever contrary to God and man. All of the apostles warned about them. Paul said of some that they both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and have persecuted us, and they pleased not God and are contrary to all men. I understand the King James Version has, and their own prophets, but that word, translated as their own, does not belong to the earliest manuscripts. They did not kill their own prophets. They killed the prophets. There was a word added to that verse, for their own, in the Middle Ages, which has caused much confusion but we have excluded it here. Jude called those same men, certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Peter called them natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, and also warned that your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about, seeking whom he may devour. These are the real devils carrying on the enmity of Genesis 3.15. They are still among us today, 
and in ever greater numbers. These devils are in the flesh, but the flesh itself is not the devil. Those who profess that the flesh is the devil put us at odds with ourselves, while at the same time they conceal from us the true nature of evil, and they give a pass to the enemies of our God. With this we shall commence with Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny to seed line. Part 24 The Last in the Series Unless one, Clifton begins, unless one thoroughly understands the significant consequences of Genesis 3.15, he simply cannot comprehend the main theme of the Bible. Without this crucial passage, one has no hope in our redemption. Now this seems to be a wild claim on the surface. However, if one examines the true nature of our original sin and what it is that we need to be redeemed from, only then can one properly understand our redemption. The corruption of Yahweh God's kind-after-kind creation is not a matter to be taken lightly, and it certainly did not result from a thought crime. Clifton continues, The four major ten I'm sorry, I don't know where I got that number four from. The major tenets of our faith depend on our understanding thereof. It is paramount, referring to Genesis 3.15, it is paramount that we fathom that Yahweh came in the flesh, dwelt among us in the flesh, was bruised in the flesh, died in the flesh, was resurrected after three days in the flesh, ascended to heaven in the flesh, and will return again to us in the flesh. Those who deny the truth of the serpent seed of Genesis 3.15 disavow Yahshua's being bruised in the flesh. It's as simple as that. To understand his bruising, one must be able to comprehend who the serpent's seed are. Failure to do this is tantamount to treason, because you'll always be working against your own kind. Therefore, we have many unscrupulous traitors, Judas goats, among us today, Ted Wyland. Those teaching Israel identity and denying the truth of Genesis 3.15 are among the most detrimental of all, for it is their unscrupulous desire to remove the element of the bruising by their fallacious position. Of course, they do a lot worse than that. Clifton is using the bruising as his example here. And if Cain and his descendants are not the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15. Pray tell, whom might they be? It would seem that if we could find the people who took the legal responsibility for crucifying our Messiah, we would, without reservation, understand who the seed of the serpent were and still are. Thus the anti-seedliners, by denying the bruising of Genesis 3.15, wittingly or unwittingly, have taken an antichrist position. And, as we explained earlier, 
Clifton's supposition is predicated on the understanding that Genesis 3.15 is a messianic prophecy. We do not directly dispute that. However, we believe instead that Genesis 3.15 is referring to an enmity between the collective seed of the serpent and the collective seed of the woman, which are all of her legitimate descendants. But we can also understand that the act of deicide committed by the Jews and admitted to be their responsibility when they said that his blood is on them and their children. The act of deicide in the crucifixion of Christ is indeed the paramount act exemplifying the historical enmity between the two races and the bruising of the heel of the Adamic race. Therefore, denying that the bruising of the Christ was at the hands of his eternal enemies, one is in essence denying Christ. Yahshua Christ was bruised for our iniquities by giving himself over to his enemies on our behalf. And while it's a little arcane, as I have explained earlier in the series, the bruising of the heel represents the fact that the Adamic man, even though the sin in the garden brought him death, the Adamic man will escape death. Picture yourself fleeing from an enemy and your heel is bruised, but you get away because you have eternal life. And Yahshua Christ is the way to that life. Continuing with Clifton. As I have stated before, unless one understands the two seed line message of Genesis 3.15, one can only comprehend the significance of about 5% of the scripture. I think that would probably be giving them too much. Let's consider the passage in Acts chapter 8 verse 23, for instance, which says, For I perceive, these are the words of Peter, For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I think that was Peter. It may have been Stephen. No, it must have been Peter. I'm sorry. This was shortly after the stoning and burial of Stephen due to the persecutions led by Saul, later called Paul. And actually, Paul was only a bystander at the stoning of Stephen, who was inspired by that event to lead the further persecution of Christians. Paul initially thought that he was defending the traditional and true religion. But he later found out that Yahshua Christ actually represented the true tradition. Clifton continues, After the followers of Yahshua became scattered, 
Philip went to Samaria and ran into a group of people who were into witchcraft big time and possessed with demons which, by Philip's preaching, were cast out of them. But there was also in Samaria one Simon who practiced sorcery and who was probably the one that got them into witchcraft in the first place. Then Simon himself decided to join the followers of the Nazarene. They had Jews for Jesus in those days too. Clifton being sarcastic, although it is certainly true. Simon, after observing the miracles of the apostles and deciding they had some kind of power superior to his, asked to purchase their trade secrets on how they did it. They had Benny Hinn's in those days also, and Clifton is being sarcastic again, but it is nevertheless true. When Peter recognized he was dealing with a Canaanite variety of Jew, or Judean, fittingly he put his finger on a problem, pointing out that this Simon was a descendant of Cain and was in the gall of bitterness. To prove that Simon was a Canaanite Jew, you will notice that when instructed to pray and repent, not having the Spirit breathed into Adam, he was unable to pray for himself, but requested the apostles to do it for him. Simon, and Clifton is referring to chapter 8, verse 24 of the book of Acts, Simon had the same gall of bitterness spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 32. The grapes of gall in that passage represent the testes, or apple, and seed of Satan through Cain. And Clifton refers back to his prior essay in this series, Special Notice number 23. In the last essay in the series, Clifton had explained that where in Deuteronomy chapter 32 it reads in reference to the Canaanites, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of dragons, and the cruel venom of asps. These are metaphorical references to the corrupt nature of the race itself. Now, Clifton continues under the subtitle, Two Seed Line Under Attack Again. And as I had said earlier in the series, to a great extent throughout the series, Clifton was responding to literature and inquiries that he received from his readers. And that is how he developed the subjects that he covered and the false identity teachers whom he addressed as the series unwound. So here he addresses a fellow named Dan Gentry. The latest attack on two seed line doctrine came in an article from the publication Facts for Action published in the winter of 2003 subtitled Christian Research which was actually Dan Gentry's name that he used for his ministry I believe 
and Clifton gives an address of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, one of our favorite places. And this attack was titled The Foundational Myth of Judaism, written by Dan Gentry. In addition to his own name, he claims the founder of the publication was the late Gerda Koch. In the middle of page one, and Gerda Koch is a suspected Jewess, in the middle of page one, he shows a colored depiction of some devils with pitchforks, evidently a sneering stab to all who believe scripture, to all who believe scripture speaks of real devils and a literal Satan. Of course, if there is no Satan, there was no seduction of Eve in Genesis 3.15. and thus no seed of the serpent, and in turn no one to bruise Messiah's heel. Yet he claims to believe in both seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, while he is strangely quiet on who the seed of the serpent might be. Maybe he would answer like the late anti-seed liner, Earl Jones, when confronted Oh, we all have bad seed in our families. That is nonsense, for we pure Israelites do not have any of Cain's genetics. It seems that Christians in medieval England understood a lot more about these devils with pitchforks than Dan Gentry does. There are on Clifton Emmerheiser's website or on Christagenia, there are court records from medieval England, records that are close to a thousand years old, if not older, that record court cases that were participated in by Jews, which certain Jews were a party to. I remember one Jew, his name was Aaron, and in the court record he was called Aaron, son of the devil. And in the margin of the document, there was actually a drawing of a devil with a pitchfork. Evidently an allusion to that Jew. Devils with pitchforks are not representations in this early English literature of spiritual demons in hell torturing men. What they're representations of is Jews on earth. And a thousand years ago, Christians knew the connection between Jews and devils with pitchforks. Somewhere at Christagenia website, and I believe I discussed this in a podcast, and that's where you will also find the illustration. A podcast I did on the expulsion of the Jews from England in 1290 A.D. And there we have a reproduction of a tax roll. And if you study the tax roll and you understand the role of the Jews in medieval England before the time of their expulsion, you'll see that these little men, if I should call them men, with horns and pitchforks, which are depicted on this tax roll, 
represent the Jewish tax collectors who were the intermediaries between the kings and the people. Now, today, scholars of English history, and and this is even on prominent government websites in the United Kingdom, scholars of English history claim that they don't know what the images of the devils represent. And that's because they love their jobs more than they love the truth. Devils with pitchforks throughout medieval England represent Jews. And medieval English Christians knew a lot more about their Bibles than clowns like Dan Gentry and Earl Jones. The folly of Earl Jones is easily demonstrable in the words of Joshua Christ, who said that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Since all men sin and fall short of the glory of God, Christ could not possibly have been intimating that good people do not sin. Christ was talking about racial trees and not about the behavior of individual men. So he also said that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. This Dan Gentry, like Ted Wyland, Stephen Jones, and Dave Barley, was one of the two seed-line denying clowns that I had written from prison, in a rather civil manner, inquiring about or perhaps even disputing certain aspects of doctrine. Like those other clowns, Dan Gentry never responded to my letter either. If I save the copy of it in my prison papers, I pray that eventually I may be able to publish it at Christagenia. Maybe someday, when I ever get to my storage unit and can get through my prison papers. Continuing with Clifton, one of Gentry's tricks is to quote Genesis 4.1 in an English translation to prove that Cain was Adam's son. I sent documentation to Gentry and said to him, When you quote Genesis 4.1 in English, you are quoting from a corrupted form of Hebrew. To show everyone this again, I will repeat the verifying evidence which I used in Special Notice number 20. Clifton, quoting himself, says that the Interpreter's Bible, a 12-volume collaborative work of 36 consulting editors, plus 124 other contributors, makes the following observation on this verse, in volume 1, on page 517, and Clifton, quoting this work, Cain seems originally to have been the ancestor of the Kenites. The meaning of the name is metalworker, or smith, here. However, it is represented as a derivation of a word meaning acquire or get one of the popular etymologies frequent in Genesis hence the mother's words I have gotten a man from the Lord is a rendering following the Septuagint and the Vulgate of Eth Yahweh referring to the part that says from the Lord which is literally with Yahweh, and so unintelligible here, the words the help of in the RSV are not in the Hebrew, 
it seems probable that Eth should be Ath, so the mark of Yahweh, and that the words are a gloss, and we wouldn't agree with the part where it says it seems probable that Eth should be Ath. That is only how those Bible interpreters try to reduce the possibility of the gloss to the simplest mistake that they could discern. Clifton continues, The Interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible, edited by Charles M. Lehman, makes the following comment on this page on page on this passage on page six. Under circumstances which are obscure, verse one B, meaning the second part of Genesis four one, verse one B can scarcely be translated, still less understood. His younger brother was named Abel, which suggests the Hebrew word for breath. Clifton goes on to say that if Genesis 4.1 is unintelligible and can scarcely be translated, still less understood, how can Gentry prove anything by quoting it? Additionally, and that's an argument Clifton has raised throughout this series of papers, and it's raised appropriately. Additionally, if the words are a gloss, where is the foundation of his premise? But I would like to key in on the last sentence of this last quotation. His younger brother was named Abel, which suggests the Hebrew word for breath. I had not quoted this last part before. But on closer examination, I realized it was enormously significant. It came to me that the breath breathed into Adam was the spirit of the Almighty, and that Abel's name was indicating that he had that same spirit breath. My first intuition was that breath equals spirit. My second intuition was that Abel equals breath of El. And, and that's not quite right, but it looks good. With Cain, that was not so, for his name means to acquire or get. In other words, a scavenger, like all the Jews are yet today. Cain was a scavenger bum from the beginning. And we haven't looked at all the possible meanings of the word Abel. There's a hef in front of the word in Hebrew, and it's smoothed out to Abel in English. I think it's actually kebel or hebel. The um, ab by itself could mean father, but as I said, there's a, another letter in front of the word, I believe, when it's spelled in Hebrew. I could check that momentarily. Yes, it's hef and then a B, and then an L, Hebel. So I would have to check what the Heb part could possibly mean by itself. But the L is usually spelled in Hebrew with an Aleph, and then the letter L. And here we do, we do not have an Aleph, so it's a different word. I, I would... um. Not think that Abel or Hebel means breath of El, but it does certainly mean breath. 
and we will continue with that. Clifton says, with Cain, that was not so, for his name means to acquire or get. In other words, and Clifton makes an excellent analogy here in the difference between the two names. In other words, a scavenger, like all the Jews are yet today. Cain was a scavenger bum from the beginning. The meanings of Cain's and Abel's names alone should establish that they were not full-blood brothers. I also sent Gentry this evidence about Abel's name. Let's now wait to see if he answers this testimony, or if he stubbornly continues to broadcast his damnable lies. Damnable inasmuch as his position promotes race-mixing for our race. If you want some mamsers or bastards in your family tree, continue to support him. This um, analogy is good, but I even look at it in, in a quite different way, not only in the nature of Abel and Cain themselves, but in the way that they were conceived. The serpent deceived Eve and got him some. She was acquired by the serpent. He used her. Where Adam giving birth to Abel, Abel was a child of the same spirit. And I think that the words fit the way that the children were conceived very well. But that's another aspect, right? Talking to Clifton as I prepared for this presentation, he could not ever recall having received an answer from Dan Gentry. Perhaps Mr. Gentry is also infected with the gall of bitterness. Now returning to Clifton, he says, Upon realizing that the name Abel meant breath, I continued to verify that this was the true definition in Hebrew. After checking the Strong's number, I found Abel was number 1893. Checking with Jesenius's Hebrew lexicon on page 214, I discovered that Strong's numbers 1891, 1892, and 1893 were all under the same general Hebrew root word, 1891, which means to breathe, to exhale. It can also mean to exhale vain words. 1892, the definition of 1892 says, breath or breathing, used of a gentle breeze, more often used of the breath of the mouth, exhalation, vapor, mist, or darkness, and also Abel, the second son of Adam. The name of Abel falls under 1893, but also is the third definition under 1892. And let me just say as a digression that James Strong separated his Strong's numbers and listed the same word sometimes under multiple numbers, not because they were really different words, but because he organized them in their different parts of speech. So if you go to the word Adam at the beginning of your Strong's Dictionary, you might see um, 118, 119, 120, 121, but if you look at the definitions, you'll realize that one number 
is the part of speech which we call an adjective and another one is the part of speech which we call a verb and then there's a noun a common noun and then there's a proper noun and if you go look at the way the word Adam is used in those various places in the King James Version of the Bible you'll see that the various Strong's numbers for each of those places that the word is used in that manner common noun, proper noun common noun it would be usually translated as man a proper noun it would be translated as Adam the adjective it would be translated as ruddy or rosy and and the verb it it would be translated as a verb to turn red to redden to turn ruddy to to be ruddy so so that's how strongs is organized but the different numbers for the same word don't really mean that they're different hebrew words and the vowel pointing was added much 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 later than the actual hebrew language was actually written in the scriptures I must also note that the breath of Genesis 2-7 where Yahweh is said to have breathed into Adam the breath of life is Strong's number 5397 it's a different word it's Neshama among other possible meanings a Neshama is a wind or breath or an inspiration or intellect and in my opinion, this is only my opinion, I can't prove this. In my opinion, in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for wind or breath was also used as a description of what we call the spirit. Because the ancients understood that while the spirit could not be seen, it nevertheless could be experienced and it was known to exist. So it's just like the wind or it's just like your breath. I don't see your breath coming out of your mouth unless I use a mirror or something. I don't see your breath, but I know it's there. You don't see the wind, but you can feel it and you know it's there. Now, while the name Abel is from a different word, the allusion to the spirit is nevertheless valid. It's only a synonym. Clifton continues to discuss this name. I believe the reason more people haven't discovered that Abel's name means breath is because Strong's only shows the meaning to be vain, to lead astray, emptiness or vanity, transitory, unsatisfactory, etc., Therefore, Strong only seemed to understand the secondary meaning of the word, which would be transientness or vanity. As you can observe, with Jesenius it is an entirely different matter. Every serious student of Scripture should have a Jesenius's Hebrew County lexicon to the Old Testament. A lot of people have Strong's, but very few have Jesenius. Additionally, the New Hebrew and English Lexicon by Francis Brown, etc., or et Ali, Francis Brown and others. Clifton's referring to the Brown Driver Briggs, as it's more better known. 
the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon. This lexicon on the same root word shows breath with the same meaning as does Jesenius's. What it all amounts to is that Abel had the spirit that was breathed into Adam by Yahweh and Cain didn't. Cain had the inherent spirit of Satan, although Eve was the mother of both Cain and Abel. What this all boils down to is that the anti-seedliners should really reconsider their position, for where does it say that Cain was in the image of Adam, or had Adam's spirit? Cain wasn't, and he didn't. Also see Strong's Greek number, 4151, which basically means breath, yet everywhere else is used to denote spirit. And I would imagine that Clifton is referring to the word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. In English we get words like pneumatic and pneumonia from that word pneuma. But the word pneuma in Greek meant breath or wind or spirit. As we also described earlier in the series, neither was Cain of the seed of Eve. Being a bastard, he could not be of Eve's seed. This is how we can distinguish the two seeds. Eve's seed is entirely from Adam. Now, if Cain was born of Eve, why wouldn't he be of Eve's seed? Eve's seed was entirely from Adam, but Cain was of the rebellious seed of his real father, who was ostensibly a fallen angel, who was identified with the fallen angels described in Revelation chapter 12. Abel, and later Seth, being sired by Adam, their seed was the same as Eve's. And therefore, they were of the seed of the woman, but Cain was not of the seed of the woman. Cain was of the seed of the serpent, a bastard like his father was. Clifton continues, That shows that Abel, unlike Cain, had the same spirit breathed into Adam. We are told in Galatians chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, that Isaac had the spirit, but Ishmael didn't. That passage reads, But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And I can't agree with Clifton with this relationship to Isaac and Ishmael, and I'm going to explain that. I would interpret this passage a little differently. Hagar was an Adamic woman of the tribe of Mitzrayim, so Ishmael could not have really been a bastard, mostly because Abraham was not a race mixer. Ishmael could not have been a bastard, even though he descended from Ham. But in this case, he, born after the flesh, was born in an attempt by Sarah, 
who was in the humble state of being barren, to ensure that her husband had an heir of his own loins. So Ishmael was born by the designs of the flesh in the desire of Sarah. But Isaac was born according to a promise and a declaration from Yahweh God himself. And was therefore born according to the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 9, Paul interpreted the birth of, the birth of Isaac in that same manner, to be according to a promise. In that manner, Paul had said in that chapter, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. All of Abraham's children are children of the flesh, whether they be Ishmaelites, Israelites, Midianites, or Edomites. They're all fleshly descendants, fleshly children. But only the Israelites were the children of the promise, so only they are counted for the seed. Nevertheless, Clifton continues... In like manner, Abel, being a son of Adam, had the spirit, but Cain, being the son of the serpent, was after the flesh. In that sense, he was certainly a son of the desires of the flesh. Therefore, when an Adamite dies in the flesh, his spirit continues to live, and we know that to be true. But not so with the other races, or Cain's mamzer, or bastard progeny. If you are under the delusion that there will be other races, including the Canaanite variety of Jews, in the kingdom of God, I have to burst your bubble. And as Joshua Christ said, as it is recorded in John chapter 3, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Only the Adamic race is born from above. Continuing again, Clifton says, At this point, I will quote two passages which Gentry claims are Jewish sources. First, in the Aramaic Targum, the Aramaic was one language which Messiah and his disciples knew. In the Aramaic Targum called Pseudo-Jonathan, on Genesis 3.6, which is unique inasmuch as it identifies the angel Samuel as the serpent, and the woman saw Samuel, the angel of death, and she was afraid and knew that the tree was good for food and that it was a remedy for the enlightenment of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and also gave it to her husband, and he ate. Secondly, Gentry quoted the Aramaic Targum Pseudo-Jonathan on Genesis 4.1, and Adam knew that his wife Eve had conceived from Samael, the angel of death, and she became pregnant and bore Cain. And he was like those on high, and not like those below. And she said, I have gotten a man from the angel of the Lord. 
Clifton says, This rendition of Genesis 4.1 is interesting, for it speaks of the angel of death, plus like those on high and like those below. This seems to accord with John 8.23, where Yahshua told the Canaanite variety of Jews, You are from beneath, and I am from above. You, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Satan was on high until his fall, when he fell like lightning, citing Luke chapter 10, verse 18. We will now evaluate Gentry's article, after which we will have a grand finale. And we have given our opinions on these passages in the Targums on many occasions, showing that they do not have to be considered as canon in order to understand that they do indicate that there is a problem with Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. That problem is also illustrated by the interpreter's Bible commentaries and by Origen's hexapla, as we have pointed out. Neither of them are particularly Jewish sources. Another source that cannot be labeled as Jewish is 4 Maccabees chapter 17 where we read a plea attributed to a noble Judean woman, which says, I was a pure virgin, and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care of the built-up rib. No destroyer of the desert, and that's got to be a an allusion to Eve, right? The built-up rib, the pure virgin. No destroyer of the desert, or ravisher of the plain, injured me. Nor did the destructive deceitful snake the serpent of the garden make spoil of my chaste virginity of course there are serpents all over the place now and they were in first century Judea and I remained with my husband during the period of my prime putting this passage alongside Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We can see exactly what Paul of Tarsus meant to the convey, where he used as an allegory the account of the serpent and the spoiling of Eve and her chaste virginity. There should be no doubt. And neither is the fourth book of Maccabees a Jewish source. Continuing with Clifton under the subtitle, Assessment of Gentry's Article. In Gentry's article, The Foundational Myth of Judaism, it would be comical if it were not so serious. It is certainly a tragedy. He's likely deceiving many innocent and ignorant lost sheep of the House of Israel and the House of Judah. His motto, Christian Research, is an inappropriate name for what he claims he is doing. The first, seriously, the first serious flaw evident in Gentry's reasoning is that he puts all the various writings which are found in the Talmud on an equal footing, having equal authority. He then uses this scheme to discredit everything found in those books. Evidently, Gentry is not aware of the fact that the Torah is the first volume in the Talmud. 
If that's the case, using Gentry's irrational reasoning, we would have to discard our entire Old Testament in the process because they are, in his words, Jewish. Gentry didn't tell you that, did he? That kind of tactic shows the cunning of a charlatan. When we are going, when are we ever going to recognize the sly method of operation of such deceivers using the old shell game, guilt by association? The writings of the Talmud are simply a collection, many which are from wicked sources, but not all. Many are from innocent sources, like the Torah, that the Jews had preserved there. Gentry's flawed premise is that all of these sources are wicked. Once understanding Gentry's underhanded maneuvers, then they can see how they can be deceived. And if you bought hook, line, and sinker Gentry's contrived conclusions, you were an Eskimo in need of a refrigerator. You were sold a bill of goods. And of course, Clifton was probably responding to things that his readers had sent him. So he's really having a sort of intimate exchange with those readers in the middle of his essay here. But that's part of Clifton's style. And Clifton is, of course, correct that the Torah and other legitimate writings are preserved in the collection of books which are generally referred to as the Talmud. But just because an idea is repeated in the profane writings of the Talmud does not mean that it is not true or that it actually originated in the mind of the Jews or in the Talmud. For example, stories of men being born of gods are also frequent in pagan Greek literature, and they were preceded by similar stories dating back as far as ancient Sumer and the 3rd millennium BC. Babylonian literature has stories of men being born of gods and goddesses. Babylonian myths have stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh, and this is also in Sumerian myths, that's where, it, that's where it originates, where goddesses were able to come down from the clouds and give birth to men on earth. There is even a story of a woman who was said to be fertilized simultaneously by, by a man and by a god who had children with each of them in the same pregnancy which is found in the writings of Hesiod in the 7th century BC. There is a technical term for this called heteropaternal superfecundation, and there are examples of it in contemporary history. But the existence of such extra-biblical accounts, which predate the Talmud by many, many centuries, should not discredit the biblical accounts nor can we imagine that the biblical accounts originated in paganism. Rather, the opposite is true. So Clifton continues, Pointedly, in assessing Gentry's newsletter, many pages, 
even chapters or books, could be spent discussing his perverted attack on what he calls Jewish and 2C line, interpretational gymnastics. Gentry insists that the term generation in Matthew chapter 16 verse 4 and chapter 3 verse 7 should mean just that and not race or nation, simply because of, as he states, the fact that a race or ethnic subgroup may fairly be called a generation of sly serpentine men because of their tradition of the elders. Yet Gentry totally ignores or avoids Matthew chapter 23 verses 29 through 36 and in that passage which Clifton has quoted here often in the past Joshua Christ holds accountable a race of people beginning with Cain for the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah a situation which does not adequately fit Gentry's description of a generation, a race of sons and fathers, near and remote, is not just a generation. It's a race, as we understand the word race. Clifton continues, In Gentry's world, Greek and Hebrew words simply cannot be taken literally if they would thereby conflict with his twisted theology. He would disconnect the primary meaning of the words genema, that which is born or produced, found in Matthew 23.33, and genea, which is a race, stock, or family. From their context, he would disconnect these words genema and genea from their context, which is directly related to the word fathers, in Matthew 23.30, and sons in 23.31, where surely genema is produce and genea is race, for sons are produce of the fathers, and combined as a unit, they are a race, as we and the Greeks know the word, not simply a generation. And let us know that even when in particular contexts, the word genea should be translated in English as generation. It nevertheless refers to all of the members of a particular race living at one time, not all members of all races. Continuing with Clifton. For a moment, analyzing Gentry's position to its lowest common denominator on Genesis 3 and 4, the second flaw evident in his reasoning is his boneheaded statement that the concept of a fallen angel migrated into the camp of Israel Judah in the 5th century BC. That's pretty sick. That is basically saying that Yahshua Christ described fallen angels based on pagan ideas which came into Israel and Judah 500 years before him. So Christ really didn't know what he was talking about when he gave us the revelation and identified that old serpent with fallen angels. Christ was full of shit, according to Dan Gentry. 
But in truth, Joshua Christ is true, and Dan Gentry is full of shit. Clifton says here, Gentry not only denies some aspects of the Book of Job and its great antiquity, and ignores or misinterprets the 12th chapter of John's Revelation, along with most of Jude, but he is more seriously attempting to discredit the prophet Isaiah by denying his antiquity and the inspiration of his words, which are the words of the Almighty found at Isaiah 14.12. Even worse than that, Gentry also would have one call into question the words of our Redeemer himself, in Luke chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. In short, gentry, in the philosophical or religious sense of the word, is neither learned nor a Christian. And we would agree with Clifton, but we would not necessarily connect Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, to Satan. That is an error perpetuated by the Judaized commentaries. Where the king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, who is said to be a man, in verse 16, so he's a man, is called Lucifer. The Latin, Greek, and Hebrew titles simply mean light bearer. I don't remember exactly what it is offhand in Hebrew, but it means light bearer. In In Latin, it is Lucifer from the word lux, lux for light, and that ending, F-E-R, fair, came from the Greek, because the Greek verb means a bearer, or to bear, or to carry, that we see in the Greek version, eosphorus, the Greek version in the Septuagint of that Lucifer in Isaiah 14 is Eosphorus, the eos part coming from the Greek word for light, like the Latin lux, and the ferus part coming from the word which means a bearer, a carrier of something. Lucifer simply means light bearer. Eosphorus simply means light bearer. Ancient kings commonly thought themselves thought of themselves as the sun on earth. The Egyptian pharaohs believed that they were the sun on earth. The Hittite kings believed that they were the sun on earth. They thought that they were the light bearers of their respective civilizations. So the king of Babylon is called Lucifer or light bearer in a very mocking tone by Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 14. But he's also called a man. As for Job, we have shown elsewhere, and I don't remember really where I have this, but it's on my website somewhere. i got to dig it out and perhaps make a fuller exposition of it. It might be somewhere in my Acts presentations, I'm guessing. As for Job, we have shown elsewhere that the book must be a product of the judges period, which can be told from the circumstances as well as the place names that appear in the book. Nevertheless, Gentry denies Job as well as misinterpreting Revelation chapter 12 and the epistle of Jude. So Clifton continues, in Luke chapter 10 verses 17 to 19, 
Gentry may disconnect the ideas of devils, Satan, and fallen from heaven as lightning, and serpents and scorpions. Here Gentry can't see that these are all the same connected entity. I guess Gentry, as he said himself, wouldn't know a metaphor if it smacked him on the head. He should take a long, hard look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Colossians 2.18, John 8.44, Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 through 43. Gentry wouldn't know a devil if one smacked him either. He'd probably turn the other cheek. Until Gentry realizes that there are devil children seed and Yahweh children seed in the world and in opposition to each other, citing the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, he will never be able to abide in the truth. And that is absolutely true. In the passage from Luke chapter 10 we read, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So ostensibly, serpents and scorpions are allegories for people who are a part of the collective enemy. There is no mention of their possible conversion, but only an expression of hope that by the power of Christ they shall be trampled. The origin of these serpents and scorpions is, in part, revealed in Revelation chapter 12. And the great dragon was cast out. This is verse 9, which Clifton referred to. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So the great dragon, the old serpent, the old serpent, that serpent from back there in Genesis chapter 3. Not just any serpent, that old serpent, a particular serpent from long ago, called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we see that serpent of old represented the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which are this entire race of rebellious angels. Evidently, the angels themselves sought to be worshipped as gods. As Paul alludes in Colossians chapter 2, which Clifton also cited here, where he warns his readers, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen. Then in John chapter 8, Christ addresses his adversaries and denies that they have a common origin. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Finally, Christ explained by another way how his enemies came into existence in Matthew chapter 13, 
where he explains in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him. Now this is the most important part of understanding this verse. His disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us, or explain to us, the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. By his continuing, we must accept that this is an explanation. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one, the enemy that sowed them, past tense. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun, the real light bearers, as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. This being an explanation of a parable from earlier in that chapter, it cannot be a parable by itself and the literal meanings of the words must be accepted. Otherwise, it would not be an explanation at all. Ted Wyland, what a clown. Now, Clifton rather pompously continues his criticism of Gentry under the subtitle, Grand Finale on Gentry's Article. This is actually the grand finale to his entire series, Clifton did go on to do a lot of things that were connected to this series, especially addressing, after this he made a series addressing people who insisted that the devil is the flesh, but he didn't do it as part of this particular series. The paragraph in Gentry's article that really shows that he didn't do his homework, proving he's not the Christian researcher he claims to be, is on page 1, which reads thus, Judaism today is the product of ancient Babylon, both culturally and spiritually. Babylon and much of Assyria had dualistic religions, that is, a belief in good gods and bad gods, whose Herculean struggle resulted in an uneasy balance. Zoroastrianism, whose gods, Ahura Mazda and Angra Mainyu typified this dichotomy, had a large impact on Judaism's formation, and explain how the concept of a fallen angel, Satan, migrated into the camp of Israel Judah in the 5th century B.C. Clifton responds, and he says that, Notice how Gentry speaks about Satan as if he was created in the minds of the prophets in the 5th century B.C. And contrary to Gentry's assertion, 
Zoroastrianism was a Persian religion. Any good history book on Persia will explain that. As for Babylon, they had two major religions. Marduk, the cult of Marduk, under Nebuchadnezzar II, and the moon god Sin under Nabonidus, the pseudo-Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel IV. And let me say this, Marduk was originally the sun god of the Sumerian pantheon, long before the Babylonians. (coughs) Just as the Egyptian pharaohs used the symbol of the asp to represent their power of royalty, In inscriptions, Marduk was always accompanied by a dragon. From the time of Hammurabi, Marduk became the principal deity of Babylon. Now we're going back to the 19th century, but when we talk about the Sumerians, we're actually in the, perhaps the the 26th through the 30th centuries, or even further back than that. From the time of Hammurabi, Marduk became the principal deity of Babylon, 19th century BC, but was always rivaled by the moon god, Enlil. For a time when Babylon was under Kassite control, the Kassites are the Chaldees in the Bible, the cult of Enlil prevailed. This is the second half of the second millennium BC. While the rivalry endured, in the first early 1st millennium BC, Marduk again became the chief cult once again, until the coming of the Empire of the Persians. While this is a digression from our topic, I cannot agree, however, that the Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel chapter 4 is Nabonidus. I am rather persuaded that the account of Daniel 4 precedes the account of Belshazzar, who was the son of Nabonidus, by at least several years. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar II, the historical Nebuchadnezzar, had a long reign over Babylon, from 605 down to 562 BC. And Daniel was a very young man, at the time of the early events of his book of prophecy, as he was taken into captivity several years before the fall of Jerusalem. The prophet certainly lived until the time of Cyrus the Great, as his book indicates that he did, but by the time of Cyrus he must have been advanced in his years. As we said in our recent presentation just last Saturday on the Book of Odes, where in the prayer of Azariah, related to Daniel chapter 3, we see that the temple in Jerusalem still stands while Daniel and his companions were in Babylon in captivity. We said, now some people may wonder at this last passage, this being related to the book of Daniel, the mention of the temple. However, it is generally esteemed and we accept the assertions that the early chapters of the book of Daniel were descriptive of a period very early in his life, and that as a young man, Daniel, along with his companions, was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon years before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. Ostensibly, 
Daniel was among those who were taken hostage to Babylon with King Jehoiachin. In the account given in 2 Kings chapter 24, and only mentioned concisely in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the destruction of the temple came 11 years later, at the end of the rule of the last king, Zedekiah. In the podcast I had said that a thousand of the princes of Jerusalem were taken at this time, and I really couldn't remember if it was detailed in Kings or in Chronicles. But the total number of hostages was actually 10,000. There were 7,000 men of war and a couple of thousand um, craftsmen, and the balance were the princes of Jerusalem. In the apocryphal literature related to the book of Daniel, his companions are described as young men. If Daniel were, perhaps, as young as 20 years of age when he was taken captive, he would have been only 31 when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. And he was only 55 when Nebuchadnezzar II died in 562 B.C. At the coming of the Persians into Babylon in, (coughs) I'm sorry, in 539 B.C., Daniel would have been around 76 years old. So we need not change the names of any of the characters mentioned in the book of Daniel in order to understand its veracity. But Clifton did write on this period at length in a series of his Watchman's teaching letters, so perhaps we will revisit the subject again soon. In any event, Clifton's argument against Dan Gentry is certainly very valid. In spite of the dualism of the surrounding nations, Satan was not an invention or an introduction of the 5th century B.C., Gentry's claim actually denies the veracity of our scripture. Gentry's claim actually pokes fun at the prescience of Christ. Satan is mentioned in the book of Job, which dates to the Judges period, and also in the 109th Psalm which is attributed to David. If we want to think that all this stuff was just made up in the 5th century BC, then we're not Christians. We're Jews. Gentry, between his ears at least, is a Jew. His attitude is Jewish. His approach to Christian scholarship is no better than the approach of the damn Jews. He may as well be following Israel Finkelstein, the, the damned kike in Palestine that, that's a biblical minimalist that thinks that the whole Old Testament was just made up in the 5th century B.C. This is a Jewish position that Dan Gentry is espousing. And he's bringing it into Christian identity. Satan is mentioned in the book of Job. Satan is mentioned in the 109th Psalm. So the concept surely existed at an early time, but it was not adequately explained until the time of Christ, who came 
as Clifton has often pointed out, to other things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Satan's alluded to in Isaiah several times. The first place that comes to mind is that Leviathan, which is in the sea. You don't think that Leviathan, which is in the sea, is actually like a whale or something, or an octopus. That Leviathan in the sea, that piercing serpent in Isaiah chapter 27, is the Jew which is mingled in with the sea of the world's peoples. That's the Leviathan in the sea. And that is also mentioned in earlier scriptures. Satan, the concept is there more often than simply in the book of Job and the 109th Psalm. Continuing with Clifton, if, quote-unquote, Judaism, as if the 5th century prophets are actually Jewish, right? So Judaism, Gentry is just a clown. If Judaism is a product of ancient Babylon, as Gentry claims, why doesn't he name which one of those two religions it is by name? In other words, is it the cult of Marduk, or is it the cult of Enlil? Because they were the principal religions of ancient Babylon in the 5th century BC. Since he speaks in general terms, it is doubtful he knows anything about Babylon's religions. From this, it should be quite clear that Gentry isn't qualified to speak on his subject, for he is neither a student of the Bible nor of secular history. Not only that, but the Babylonian Talmud is called Babylonian because it was the quote-unquote old traditions of the elders correlated and written down at the city of Babylon sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And let me say that there are actually competing collections of what is called the Talmud. One called the Jerusalem Talmud and another called the Babylonian Talmud while the Babylonian Talmud prevailed in popularity. Neither of them existed until well after the time of Christ and the destruction of the Temple. Getting back to Clifton. As for Zoroastrianism, Gentry rushes into that subject like a bull in a porcelain ware shop. I guess Clifton didn't want to say China shop. I think that's pretty funny. Like a bull in a porcelain ware shop, and to hell with the Chinese, <laughs> and categorizes it as dual theistic, as he states good, good gods and bad gods. This shows that he hasn't thoroughly researched the subject, and I will quote from Systematic Theology by a man named Hodge. Originally published in 1872, verifying opposing evidence, and quoting from Hodge's Systematic Theology, in the religion of Zoroaster, there is a far nearer approach to the doctrines of the Bible. As the scriptures teach that God at first created all things good, 
and made man in his own image, and placed him upon probation in Eden. So Zoroaster taught that Ormuz created all things good, and that all were sinless and happy, and fitted for immortality. And as the Bible teaches that through the seduction of Satan, man fell from his original state, and became the subject of sin, misery, and death, so in the religion of the ancient Persians it is taught that Ahriman, the personal principle of evil, co-eternal with Ormuz, the principle of good, effected the ruin of man for this world and the next. Such was the origin of evil. Such was the beginning of the conflict between good and evil, of which our earth has been the theater. Both systems teach the ultimate triumph of the good and the redemption of man. Both teach a future state, the resurrection of the body, and the renewal of the earth, or that there are to be a new heaven and a new earth. It is certain from the teachings of the New Testament that Hebrews did not derive this doctrine, these doctrines from the Persians. It is therefore in the highest degree probable that the Persians derived them from the family of Shem, who were the depositaries of the revelations of God. And in response to that, Clifton says, note that Hodge, in his article, failed to realize that the Persians, like their neighboring dispersed Israelites, were also descended of Shem, pointing to Elam in Genesis 10.22 and Isaiah chapters 11 and 21. I don't... Clifton has an ellipsis here between the words, in the highest degree probable, that the Persians derived them from. Then there's an ellipsis, and it says the family of Shem, who were the depositaries of the religions of God. I would think that the ellipsis must have included an allusion to the Hebrews. Because Clifton goes on to say that Hodge failed to connect the Persians to Shemites. And the Persians were certainly of Shem. So something's missing there, which Clifton elided and broke the context of the statement. I probably should have caught it yesterday when I prepared this presentation. In spite of the fantastic claims of the many alleged scholars, Zoroaster seems to have been a historical figure from as recently as the 7th century BC, a time when there was significant Israelite presence in Media and Persia. Strong argument can be made that Zoroastrianism is actually a perversion of the ancient religion of the Hebrews before Judaism, because Ezra and Nehemiah were, were not Jews. Not by any means. They were Hebrews. They were Israelites. They were Judahites. They weren't Jews. So Clifton continues. Additionally, the similarity of the religion of the Hebrews to that of Ahura Mazda, or Zoroastrianism, shows they both had the same angel beings, such as Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel, Suriel, and others. 
And let me say that in the book of Tobit, which is a book that was written according to itself in the Israelite captivity in Assyria, those angel beings have a, a, a large role in the story. And that story must have been widely disseminated. There is a similar story um, circulating in Persian folklore later in history called the Grateful Dead, which seems to um, lose a lot of its Christian facade. And I yes, I will call the Book of Tobit Christian in the sense that it's certainly not Jewish. It belonged to the Hebrews. Additionally, the similarity of the religion of the Hebrews to that of Ahura Mazda shows they both had the same angel beings, such as Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel, and Suriel, and others. Pray tell, what are we going to do with such passages as Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 and 21? Daniel 12.1, Jude verse 7, and Revelation 12 verse 7, on Michael, and Daniel chapters, chapter 8 verse 16, chapter 9 verse 12, or Luke chapter 1 verses 19 and 26, on Gabriel. In other words, if these angels are named in the writings of Zoroaster, and we see that according to Dan Gentry, these these concepts came into Judaism in the 5th century BC and that's how they got into our Bibles. Clifton saying Dan Gentry's position is discrediting all of these important passages of scripture. All of these very prophetic and very trustworthy passages of scripture. Because these these prophecies in Daniel and in the Revelation, and in Jude, are all absolutely prophetic and can be proven, proven to be truth. History written in advance. True prophecy. Clifton says, it should become quite clear that Gentry is preaching, wittingly or unwittingly, an antichrist religion by denying Michael and Gabriel. Furthermore, it should be abundantly apparent that both true Hebrew and Zoroastrianism, or Clifton calls it Ahura Mazda, were dualistic in nature, with the forces of Yahweh struggling against the forces of evil. Genesis 3.15 I have given some of my sources on Ahura Mazda. Why doesn't Gentry identify his? It would also appear that Gentry is quite confused on history, as he dubs Persian history as pagan Babylonian. I wouldn't say the Persian religion of Zoroaster was perfect, but I would say that it was taken from the Hebrew. We may consider the Hebrew religion to be dualistic to a degree, but we should not consider a personal Satan to have supernatural powers as if he were on an equal footing with God. That is basically idolatry. That sort of dualism is not found in scripture. Rather, here on earth, there is a tree of life, 
which is Christ and his race. The Adamic race, which God created. And there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the devil and the race which had rebelled and become corrupted. From that, there is further dualism in the struggle between the two seeds of Genesis 3.15. But in the end, there is only Yahweh our God, his Christ and his people, the single tree of life of Revelation chapter 22. The other trees are gone. Clifton moves towards a conclusion under the subtitle, Gentry's Motives. Quite dangerous are the ideologies that some unscrupulous men promote. This is evident with Gentry's opening statement on page one of his article, where he says, It's ironic that those who'd have you believe Mother Eve had sexual intercourse with a fallen angel, producing a son, Cain, who allegedly fathered the Jews to be responsible for all the sin in the world, choose a Jewish source, Targum, Targum and Midrash, to supposedly prove their point. If they hate the Jews so much, why do they consistently cite them as authorities? Clifton responds, Do you see what Gentry just intimated? He just pardoned the Canaanite variety of Jews for the crucifixion of our Messiah, as the Roman Catholic Pope recently did when Gentry implied that the Jews were not responsible for all the sin in the world. Therefore, Gentry's statement does not square with Scripture. Then, in the next paragraph, Gentry says, Truth will win out, despite self-serving attempts to explain away the origin and nature of evil in this world. Again, Clifton responds, By that totally irresponsible statement, Gentry just condoned the Jews, including their agenda to crossbreed out of existence the white Israel race. From that statement by Gentry, it is quite evident he is aiding and abetting the Jews in that agenda. It would seem, if Gentry is any kind of man at all, he would reconsider his position, but don't hold your breath. Under these circumstances, are we two seedliners to sit idly by and say and do nothing to counter these ridiculous accusations? I've been told by some unenlightened and perhaps well-meaning individuals that that's what we should be doing. In other words, let our children mate with the other races in order to keep the peace. What the hell kind of peace is that? Whether Gentry and all of his backslapping buddies realize it or not, by their position they are contributing to our present-day problem of miscegenation. Then, in a paragraph on pages 1 and 4, Gentry says, speaking of good and evil, In contrast, the Israelites prior to this had no such cosmology and their view of the Creator as sole sovereign and originator of good and evil, (coughs) referring to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 7, and Amos chapter 3 through verse 8. Gentry says, speaking of good and evil, 
In contrast, the Israelites prior to this had no such cosmology, and their view of the Creator as sole sovereign and originator of good and evil. Right cannot be manifest, save in the presence of wrong. Light cannot be manifest except by the presence of darkness. By these we see Yahweh's divine purpose in commanding both good and evil. Some may say, as they did in Romans chapter 3 verse 8, why not commit evil so that good may result? Mainly for two reasons. We cannot control evil for good as Yahweh can. And we cannot logically do evil if we have been truly been saved, experienced spiritual and renewal, spiritual renewal and repentance. And Clifton responds, garbage piled on top of garbage. Which is certainly true. That was nothing but garbage. Dan Gentry. Here Dan Gentry blamed Yahweh God himself for all the sin in the world by taking two passages completely out of context. (coughs) In Isaiah chapter 45, Yahweh says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, Yahweh, have created it. Woe unto him that strives with his Maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work? He has no hands. In that context, Yahweh credits himself for creating evil, for those who strive with him. But there is another kind of evil, which is rebellion against Yahweh and his laws. That kind of evil, Yahweh does not create. Gentry fails to distinguish different types of evil. Yahweh punishes those who have it coming. So for them, he creates evil. But he cannot be blamed for rebellion against himself. That same situation is described in Amos chapter 3 which speaks of the punishment of Israel. But the evil which Yahweh creates for the chastisement of his people is actually for good, while the evil that the people create by rebelling against their God is never for good. Dan Gentry is a clown for confusing or for not distinguishing these two types of evil. Again, Clifton continues, where he carries the evil imposed by Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 45 to the judgment of Babylon at the hands of the Persians described in Isaiah chapter 46, which is also relevant. He says, let's take a look at this and see how really dangerous this turkey is. 
<laughs> referring to Gentry. Gentry is taking the same position as the early Christian heretics, Marcion, Valentinian, and other Gnostic sects, citing the Believer's Bible Commentary. Gentry's false premise is that he is attributing all evil to Yahweh in spite of James 1.13. Then he cites Isaiah 45 and Amos chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 in an attempt to prove his point. In the process, he takes the entire Isaiah chapter 45 out of context. The true context is that Yahweh is predicting life, light, light and prosperity for Persia, light, and Clifton has life after light in parentheses, and darkness or death and disaster for Babylon, not merely evil, or not death for evil. Gentry's motive here is to show that there was no enmity in Genesis 3.15 between two opposing sea lines. By making Yahweh the author of all evil, he is intimating that Yahweh himself bruised the sun, and therefore was responsible for the crucifixion of the Redeemer. Since Yahshua was both father and son in one person, this is implying that our Savior committed suicide. This may be funny if the consequences of such false teachings were not so serious. To deny that Yahweh God has enemies is to permit the people of God to accept those enemies. When they accept those enemies, as we read in 2 John, verses 9-11, they become responsible for their evil works. And that is the fault of all churches now, since at least the second century after Christ. Just as it was the fault of the ancient Israelites who fell short of exterminating those enemies in the conquest of Canaan. Clifton continues, You may wonder, when I'm going to stop taking all these false teachers to task? The answer is, when I see school buses filled entirely with unmixed white children, when I go past playgrounds where unmixed white children are playing with white playmates, when I see graceful, unmixed young white girls dating fine, polite young white boys, when I see young white unmixed ladies marrying young white unmixed gentlemen, when I go to a restaurant and I see unmixed white families in all the booths, when going to maternity wards and I see them all filled with pure, unmixed white babies. That's when. We are confident that one day Clifton, who is only 90 years old, shall indeed see these things. We shall all see them, and that is our Christian hope. A white world is the kingdom of heaven. This concludes our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's special notices to all who deny two seed line. If it isn't two seed line,
it cannot be Christian identity. If it isn't Christian identity, it cannot be Christianity. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.